and welcome back to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the executive director of the council, as well as your podcast host. It is so great to have you listening to our program here today, and I appreciate our repeat listeners. I hope you are all doing well during this global pandemic and are staying safe, both physically and mentally. It is important that we all remain strong and positive during this time to ensure that the sacrifices we have all made to this point are not in vain. For those of you who it is your first time engaging with the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire program, welcome. We are excited that you have decided to engage with our work and hope you will check out our other offerings. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan membership organization located in Manchester, New Hampshire, and we help people to better understand the complex global issues our nation is faced with today. Please do find out more about our council at www.wacnh.org. We are so excited for this month's episode as we explore a little deeper into the two big programs that the council manages. World Affairs Council Speaker Programs, and the International Visitor Leadership Program. These are more vital than ever as the world works its way through the pandemic. The challenges of the world may not be front and center beyond COVID-19, but they are still there and it is inherent upon global citizens to remain informed. As the saying goes, democracy dies in the dark, and that applies to global democracy as well. Please enjoy today's interviews, and I hope you will consider liking this episode and subscribing on your platform of choice. That way, you can get updates when new episodes are available. Thank you for listening, and let's get started. Bill Clifford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Councils of America. This nationwide network of over 90 councils from across the country, of which the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a member, helps to foster a better understanding of complex global issues here in the United States. You can say that what's important about international affairs are the high-brow issues of war and peace, of conflict and cooperation, of wealth and poverty, but Every day, we are experiencing the effects and influence of international relations on our lives. And so, to better understand trends, changes, and who is leading the show, and who is uh, doing business all over the world, and what kind of social interactions have impact, this is all important. COVID has merely, I think, accelerated awareness of what goes on in the world and how it affects everyday citizens. And certainly when we think of coming out of this, not only the health crisis, but the economic crisis that it's engendering with so many people unemployed and why, this is going to be a focus and it's international relations is is at the core. Many of you may know about this national organization and the great work that it does across the country. Some may have only ever engaged with the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, not knowing we are a part of this wonderful group of organizations while still more may have only just stumbled across our podcast. 
So for those who are wondering what the World Affairs Councils of America does, I asked Bill to give an overview of the network. The World Affairs Councils of America is an association that represents 90 World Affairs Councils across the U.S., including Alaska and Hawaii. And together, our common mission is to engage and inform Americans, the public, about critical global issues. We do this with a view to having everyday people access leaders who make decisions on everything from national security to international trade, human rights, social justice, the environment, global health and science, cultural preservation. And we do this in public forums, we do this through international exchanges, and for people of all ages, a great deal of our programming, both at the individual council level and nationally, goes to high school and college students. And we want to inform not only citizens, but workforce, leaders, and learners of tomorrow. As with all sectors of the economy, the global pandemic has caused massive disruptions, as well as a number of amazing opportunities. The World Affairs Councils of America network is, of course, no different. However, this pandemic is of particular interest to many of the councils due to its global nature. Well, the pandemic has put a tremendous financial pinch on individual organizations and the national office that I lead in that our traditional revenue base comes from in-person events and gatherings, and obviously these cannot take place. It has accelerated, as you point out, the shift to virtual uh, programs online via Zoom and other platforms. And this is a positive development in that I think we're able to reach a wider audience. We've seen that in the national offerings from WACA and what we're trying to do is to aggregate the incredible shift to digital programming from individual councils like Black New Hampshire. Bill is, of course, talking about our WACNH Live events that we have been hosting online since late March. These programs have been very well received and have opened new doors to the organization. For example, on June 3rd, we will be hosting our first truly international event with Dr. Nicola, as he will be joining us from the Czech Republic. The Council has found so much success with these online programs that it seems they are here to stay even after we get back to in-person programming. The trick really is how to monetize this change in programming. Uh, I think that we're seeing a lot of councils are seeking donations while they offer these special programs. And whether we can completely as a network make the move to charging certain amounts for the, the great events that are provided uh, remains to be seen. Seems like an opportune time to talk about the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire's funding model. While we make the best effort to raise money for our work through grants and sponsorships, these programs can only continue with the generous support of our members and donors. Many of our events are offered for free, particularly online, but there are costs to bringing you such great programming. We hope that you will consider joining as a member or simply text WACNH to 44321 to receive a link to ensure the global future we are all interested in seeing. This is not a unique challenge to New Hampshire, as Bill makes clear. A number of councils are expressing difficulty on that front. Part of it is technology. They have to have e-pay walls and so forth. And part of it is just a concern that they may not draw the audience because at this time, 
cash is short, and there's also a wealth of opportunities outside what councils are providing. So it is a tricky transition. Despite these opportunities and the challenges that they bring, the network has been resilient. One of the things that I'd like to highlight is the amazing council-led effort called uh, Putting the World Back Together, an Ideas Summit that we co-hosted in the first week of May, which was five days, 55 programs, all produced and moderated by our local councils. And it, it provided tremendous national engagement and cohesion and was a great offering to not only the members that individual councils serve, but a growing public. The World Affairs Council of New Hampshire joined in that effort when we hosted Manu Bhagavan to talk about the rising authoritarian trends in India. It was a wonderful program that over 150 people have engaged with, and many people have identified this as our best online program yet. Festival of Programs provided the network with the opportunity to come together and share programs in ways that have not been done before. There were many lessons learned through this process, with the biggest being... We knew it all along that this network had a unique convening power by virtue of the leaders and decision makers on foreign policy that we typically present week in and week out. But this summit showed that we can rally in a very short time. We just prepared this in two weeks. And I think we'll be able to do more focused gatherings online, perhaps multi-day, on corporate issues, on issues that matter to various international organizations and NGOs come the fall if we're universities and other organizations are grappling with the very same issues of opening up. We may do some university-centered programming, and of course, regardless of whether we're able to meet in person in November, our conference scheduled November 18 to 20 is right after the election. And whether it is a second term for the Trump administration or a Democratic administration coming in, we will have plenty to talk about on world affairs and foreign policy. Speaking of the power of the network, you may have heard about our WorldQuest Global Pop Trivia online events. These came out of our pub trivia nights pre-pandemic and were designed as a way to engage people in a more fun and social way than our typical programs. We offered the idea up to the national network, and 18 councils decided to join us in a nationwide competition. Tonight, June 1st, is the third in a series of four weekly events where we will crown a winner of the New Hampshire local competition. The top two participants from each council will have the opportunity to compete in a national online event to crown a national winner. It also leverages the branding and idea of the Academic World Quest program of World Affairs Council. And this is a wonderful engagement that you and, and several other councils are participating in over the five or six weeks from mid-May, which is to offer a global pop trivia challenge to our communities and to really keep them engaged in a fun way that shows their knowledge of world affairs, but at the same time gives them a chance at a virtual community and, and some competition to spur them to pay attention a little bit more. This is really more evidence that whether it's adding new programs or adapting existing programs in new ways, the councils are showing tremendous innovation and resilience to get through this period. And I actually hope that we 
continue to do the digital programming. For me, it was something that we should long have been doing, and we know that we're, you know, resource challenged even in the best of times as nonprofits. But necessity is the mother of invention, and so we're off and running. As we are all moving to more digital programs, did you know that as a member of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, that you can also engage with many of the World Affairs Councils of America's programs for free? Well, we have uh, established over my tenure, which is seven years now, a number of conference call programs. One is a monthly author series called Cover to Cover, and we present some great thinkers and, and writers on all different subjects of international affairs, from handling human rights and global poverty to international markets and trade, climate change, and regionally focused on what's happening in, say, Iran or the Arab world, how the U.S. is dealing with China, and, and other issues like that. Another program which aired more occasional, in other words, when, when issues arise and council leaders step up, we have something called Know Now, which is also a moderated 30-minute conference call that's open to the public. And just last week, our World Affairs Council in San Antonio hosted Ambassador Luis Moreno on Latin American Affairs, which was very interesting, looking at some of the big challenges, not only COVID, but immigration and combating international crime, drugs, as well as individual issues such as the crisis in Venezuela. These are very valuable offerings that we think we provide to councils so that they can vet speakers and learn about other options for convening in their own area, whether it's that given speaker or issues, but it's also a chance for them to extend member benefits to their own community members by virtue of opening up that conference call, usually twice or three times a month, to the communities that the councils serve. Also, the World Affairs Councils of America provides grant funding to councils based on projects that engender national conversations. We've had several a year, and the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire most recently participated in a future Korea project. So what we do there is we work with think tanks and other organizations and foundations, not only in Washington, D.C., but around the country, to provide special subject experts on matters of global, national, and local importance. So one project underway is with the World Food Program USA. We're also launching a new project with the American Academy of Diplomacy on the State of the State Department. And we have a project with the Sasakawa Peace Foundation of Japan on the importance of the U.S.-Japan alliance. We're also going to be reapplying for our Wunderbar Together program with the German Foreign Ministry, which was hugely successful for us in 2019, involving 25 councils looking at transatlantic relations and individual issues that affect Germany and the U.S., as well as cultural and social matters of interest. The challenge this year is that, of course, these programs were meant to be in person, so they're all backloaded to the fall and probably early 2021. And so, you know, we're, we're just doing our best with the conditions that present themselves to us, but there's no shortage of 
organizations that want to engage with the council network. So I would say partnerships and forming new partnerships are at a premium. I myself have been working with or being interviewed by a number of organizations like the Asia Society and Japan Society and others. I'm going to be doing a radio interview with European Outlet next week. And so we're trying to keep active in that way as well. Given such an initial reliance on in-person events, how do councils move forward, and what has this national organization been doing to support their members? Well, the short answer on both is we believe that a cohesive national network is more than the sum of its parts. In times of emergency, people rally, and we're no different. We knew that our councils were facing, or were about to face, some very challenging circumstances, both on the programming front, the financial front, and therefore personnel. So we felt we had to be as proactive as possible, and we were following the developments with what the national leaders were doing in this country and what international leaders like the WHO, the World Health Organization, were telling us in terms of the threat from the novel coronavirus. And so we started to simply share facts and guidance on how we should operate as councils. The Waka National Office made its own decisions earlier to suspend in-person work at the at our offices, and we've been teleworking since early March and continue to do so. We were advising on the payment protection program loans, which I think many councils have accessed so that they can continue to sustain full employment at their operations around the country. And by bringing together not just this information, we've, we've hosted probably four or five special conference calls to allow for council leaders to talk with each other about the matters that they're confronting locally and how these relate to their peers. I think we'll continue uh, to address best practice issues. We've held a special conference call strictly for that segment of our membership, which is all volunteer councils. And finally, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is one of uh, almost 30 councils that belong not only to our network, the World Affairs Councils of America, but also to Global Ties U.S., which nationalizes the International Visitor Exchange. I'm in touch with the Global Ties leader, Catherine Brown, and I think we've helped each other terms of how we communicate to our network and some of the common issues that members are facing. And we want to be there at the sounding board where possible. We want to increase services and help out. I'm trying to still work to cultivate relationships with grant funders that will benefit our network. And as we move to the new phase, I don't want to say the new normal because nothing seems normal anymore, but I, I think we need to continue these conversations because once we're reopened, we'll be able to learn from each other, and that's really how we make a stronger national organization. I want to end this interview on a positive note and turn to Bill to provide us with some hope moving forward. World Affairs councils are more vital than ever. This is a very complex, interconnected world. It will remain so whether or not countries pursue greater economic nationalism, isolationism in some form. We, on a technological level, 
on a cultural level, on a social level, and on a business level, remain in- integrated as a planet. And there are challenges, COVID, climate, and others that press upon all of us. And we are a vital vehicle for bringing together leadership so that we can have dialogue on these crucial subjects and make better decisions. That's positive to be seen in that light. And I think the World Affairs Council brand, as I'm experiencing myself with every partnership we undertake, is showing its value. And so I think that the positive thing going forward is we can build on the greater audience participation that we're seeing. Thank you so much to Bill Clifford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of America, for joining us for this discussion. And thank you to him and his wonderful staff in D.C. for all of their support in the work that we do. Thank you, Tim, for having me, and keep up the great work in New Hampshire. You're doing an excellent job. The IVLP, or International Visitor Leadership Program, is the flagship international exchange program of the United States Department of State, bringing over 5,000 up-and-coming leaders in the field of government, business, nonprofit, and other fields to the U.S. each year. New Hampshire hosts around 250 to 300 of these amazing guests. During their three-week visit to the country, each group visits three to four cities and has professional meetings on their topic of interest. Opportunities to learn about the culture and history of the U.S. also abound. We took the time to speak with Ann Grimes, Director of the Office of International Visitors, about the importance of this program. And not just from the participants themselves, from everyone involved. From the officers at our embassies and consulates who nominate the visitors, to the programming agencies and Office of International Visitors staff who craft the project, to the community-based members, like the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, who welcome the visitors into your businesses and homes, we all find it life-changing. This program started off in the 1940s, with the U.S. government inviting people from Mexico to come and learn more about the United States and to build better relations between our countries and communities. Eighty years later, the State Department is commemorating this anniversary with a program called the 80 Faces of Change. Over the next year, the State Department will be highlighting 80 alumni of this program who have gone on to create change in their home country after participating in this exchange program. We are so excited to be celebrating this milestone throughout the year. The 80 Faces campaign is a way to highlight just how effective and impactful IVLP can be. We selected 80 IVLP alumni who have gone on to make an impact or change in their communities based on what they learned during their IVLP exchange program. These faces range from quite notable ones, such as Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. She participated in a 2012 IVLP program on foreign policy. And then there's Veronica Corchado Espinoza, a women's rights defender in Mexico. She spent her career working to reduce violence against women. And motivated by her IVLP, Corchado established the Collective for Arts, 
community and equality, a civil society organization in Cuidad Juarez to empower at-risk youth through education, sports, and the arts. Those are just two examples of the types of IBLP alumni we'll be highlighting. We're unveiling new faces every month, so please do keep checking back on the website to read all about them. And that website is eca.state.gov slash faces of exchange. You may be wondering where the U.S. Department of State finds such strong changemakers in these countries around the world. Is there an application process that has been honed over the years to focus in on people destined for leadership roles? Are there tests someone needs to pass or requirements to meet in order to be considered? You might expect me to say that there's a science to the process. However, as a Foreign Service officer myself, having nominated participants for the IVLP, I see it as more of an art. Foreign Service officers posted at embassies all over the world have the job of meeting people, convening people, and making contacts. Professionals who come on the IBLP are those contacts. Your audience may be aware that more than 500 current and former heads of state and chiefs of government around the world are IBLP alumni. That's a notable achievement, and we're proud of that statistic. So is this only for high-level government officials to meet with each other? If not, who else does the Department of State look to engage with? So the program doesn't just seek out leaders in government. Participants are often grassroots organizers demonstrate leadership qualities and potential influencers in their field. There are countless stories of these alumni who go on to create change in their home community. Harder to quantify, but just as powerful in my opinion. With a program that has this much potential to affect the lives of so many people, how is this program viewed by those in the field? The officers, and I'm talking about officers from first tour officers to ambassadors, all refer to the IVLP as the best tool in the public diplomacy toolkit. We all believe that it's one of the most powerful and impactful programs that we have to use in our job. The IVLP does what foreign service officers attempt to do over months and months in their countries, which is expose people to America, American values, and the American way of life. Yet the IVLP does this best by showing participants all of this firsthand and letting them see America with their own eyes and see America worse than all. In today's world, where everything seems to be divided between Republicans and Democrats, with very little room for engagement, the IVLP is a bright spot in terms of bipartisanship. As a federally funded program, which receives less than one-tenth of one percent of the total budget, it has endured through it all. What can be attributed to the ability of this program to bring people together in agreement rather than divide them? I think this is largely due to our ability to keep the program fair and balanced in all perspectives. When program offices are planning the itineraries and schedule of meetings for each IVOP project, they make sure to include a variety of political perspectives and balanced viewpoints. It's not a biased program. I think also that Congress sees the benefits to the United States both in exposure to international participants and economic benefits to their communities. We also think of the program as a whole-of-government approach to advancing foreign policy goals. Participant nominations can be made by other U.S. government agency personnel at the embassy, depending on the project topic. For example, a border security IVLP project might include participants who are nominated by a Department of Homeland Security officer at the embassy since the goals of the program align with the same goals that DHS is working toward. 
given the synergies, the IBOP garners support from all over the government? Well, I think a key factor in ensuring that the program shows diverse perspectives and warts and all, as I mentioned previously, is partially due to our public-private partnership model. We at the State Department work with implementing private sector partners in D.C. and with you there in New Hampshire and the other CBMs around the country. To dive a little further into this point, it is the local organizations, like the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, who propose the potential meetings for the group when they are in each city. It is incumbent on these councils to have the local knowledge and connections that will provide the groups with a variety of perspectives on the issues at hand. The State Department allows these councils leeway in providing different viewpoints if they are respected voices in the community. The number of times that our visitors have met with both the Republican and Democratic state parties here in New Hampshire to talk politics has been impressive. Also, the different meetings we are able to put together ensure the visitors are able to see the challenges that our state faces and how we are working to tackle those issues. It is a great opportunity and a great level of trust that the Department of State puts in these local community-based members. Another factor is that government employees don't travel with the group. We want the conversations and meetings to be candid and off the record, and that helps to ensure that the program is a true representation of the diversity of the United States. And it's why we simply could not implement this program without globalized U.S. community-based members like your World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. You guys are integral to the success of the International Visitor Leadership Program. And we like to say we show, not tell. We don't show just one side of the United States. We aim to show all sides of an issue as well as to talk about what we've done well and where we fall short. And then the participant can draw his or her own conclusion. And this often results in them taking back an idea to implement in their own country that ends up benefiting their community. It is wonderful that this program provides so many great benefits to both participants and the United States. However, this is still a U.S. government-funded program. So what outcomes and goals does the Department of State set for these trips? Well, when we talk about the goals of the IVLP, I think it's helpful to remember that all the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs programs are mandated by the Mutual Education and Cultural Exchange Act of 1961, also known as the Fulbright-Hayes Act. And that's about cultivating mutual understanding between the people of the United States and the people of other countries to promote friendly and peaceful relations. While part of this mutual understanding is showcasing the diversity of the United States, people, and opinions, there's also a strong intention to make connections that will hopefully move into longer-term relationships between people, professionals, businesses, organizations, etc. We plant the seeds and then we leave it up to the participants and the Americans they meet along the way to foster those relationships. What about the local communities? Is there a tangible benefit or set of benefits that they get by hosting these visitors? From what we've seen and continue to hear from our partners, it's that the IBLP brings the world to your community. Not everyone has the means or opportunity to travel, and so by bringing international exchange participants to your community and even into your homes to share a meal, and thank you for hosting them, you're able to learn about a person and country who you might not necessarily know anything about. So when IBLP participants go into schools and share their culture with students, those are students who may never have the chance to travel, and the participants can inspire these students to expand their world, and that's a huge value. 
they participate in volunteer activities and really participate, not just watch. And that's been beneficial for both sides also. Furthermore, by meeting with ideal participants in your workplaces, in your homes, during community events, you're being a citizen diplomat and you play a key part in public diplomacy. You're building relationships with the participants and hopefully staying connected with them after they return to their home country. This is why the IBLP works so well, we think. We have a vast network of citizen diplomats who are the face of the United States. And we always need to thank you for doing all that you do, for welcoming participants in your community and engaging in these real and honest conversations. We at the State Department could not do this program without all of you. I would also add that these exchanges are a two-way street. Not only are our participants learning about the U.S. and our best practices, these people share with the people of New Hampshire about how things are done in their home countries. Having spent thousands of hours with these visitors over the years, observing their local meetings, I have seen firsthand the opportunity this provides to local hosts. The chance to meet with your international counterpart and share ideas is powerful. It is also important to note that these visitors stay in local hotels, eat at local restaurants, and shop at local stores. It is estimated that the economic impact on the state is over $500,000 each year. This will be especially important once we are able to host visitors again and restaurants, hotels, and retail try to recover from the pandemic. Speaking of the COVID-19 pandemic, the State Department has wisely paused all programs until at least October. However, with no visitors coming to the U.S. at this point, the department is looking at ways that can ensure that these programs do not completely go away. Being in the business of people-to-people diplomacy, we know that nothing can replace that. With an 80-year history for the IBLP, we strongly believe that this public diplomacy strategy and tool works, and we want to and we will continue it. Given that we do have such a long and successful history, we view this current situation as a short-term pause in programs. Of course, we feel badly that the participants who are scheduled to come to the United States during these months are not able to come now, but we hope to reschedule as many projects as we can when it's advisable to start in-person programming again. Additionally, we're currently exploring options for implementing virtual components of the IVLP or full virtual projects. And you should know because you participated in one with uh, with a group that was cut short and you were able to set up a meeting virtually with them. And while we don't believe that virtual would ever replace the traditional IVLP program, in the current reality, we're looking at ways to move forward that will allow us to continue the program. It does seem that this program is an important tool in the State Department's arsenal to promote peace and prosperity around the world. It is an amazing program which provides people with the opportunity to become citizen diplomats and help reach the U.S. foreign policy goals. The IBLP is a key component of the overall State Department's effort to advance foreign policy goals. Whether a project is put together on the topic of advancing human rights, increasing government accountability, bolstering democratic principles, or promoting women in entrepreneurship, they all connect to a foreign policy goal. The IBLP is a complement to traditional government-to-government diplomacy. We break down barriers, debunk stereotypes, and foster people-to-people connections that can contribute to peace and prosperity throughout the world. 
I want to thank Anne Grimes, Director of the Office of International Exchanges at the U.S. Department of State, for joining me today via phone and for all of her and her team's efforts to support this wonderful program. It is an important part of our work here in New Hampshire, which is to help people better understand the world around them, and the Council would not be the same without it. Thank you again for all you do. Thank you for having me. again for joining us and listening to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. To find out more about the Council and how you can get involved, visit our website at www.wacnh.org. We hope you will support this podcast effort by considering a donation to keep this program alive. Your support is vital to creating the global future we need. Looking forward to exploring future global issues with you in next month's episode. Stay well. Uh-huh.